everyone, and welcome to another episode of Eurostory Podcast, the stories of politics, law, and history of Europe. My name is Ada Pettersson, and unfortunately, my usual co-host, Floris van Dorn, was unable to make it. But out of true camaraderie, Eurostory's Karolina Stenlund is here today with me as my co-host for the episode. Hi, Karolina. Hi. On this podcast, we're here to talk with researchers about all things Europe. And today... We've got the utmost pleasure of talking to Marti Koskenniemi. Hi, Marti. Hello. So Marti is an emeritus professor of international law and the director of the Erikastrian Institute of International Law and Human Rights. He has held visiting professorships at New York University, the University of Cambridge, the University of Utrecht, Columbia University, the University of Sao Paulo, the University of Toronto, and several different universities of Paris, and has been a centennial professor at the LSE. In addition to this, he was also a member of the Finnish Diplomatic Service 1978 to 1994, and the International Law Commission UN 2002 to 2006. During his academic career, Marti Koskeniemi has published widely on the history and politics of international law, His main publications include From Apology to Utopia, The Structure of International Legal Argument, The Gentle Civilizer of Nations, The Rise and Fall of International Law from 1870 to 1960, The Politics of International Law, and The Cambridge Companion to International Law. And today we'll be talking about his latest book, To the Uttermost Parts of the Earth, Legal Imagination and International Power from 1300 to 1870, which was published last year. So before discussing the book itself, it would be great to hear more about your background and how you ended up in academia after the diplomatic service. So um, could you maybe start by telling us what you studied in the university and what was the subject uh, of your studies, a clear choice for you growing up? Well, I studied at Turku University in the 1970s when it was all very political. And I was a political person among the student union and participated in all kinds of demonstrations and actions, etc. And doing law was a kind of a sideshow for me. I just always wanted to be a political person. But then somehow <laughs> I lost interest in politics Um, uh, and thought that, well, the closest thing to that would perhaps be diplomacy. And I didn't have any particular attachment at, at undergraduate level to any... So I did my undergraduate thesis in international law, but I didn't think much of it at the time. Then I went to the foreign ministry, um, and it was there where I started to have an interest in what this curious business is that they call international law and what is it that international lawyers do and states do, so-called, um, when they think they are dealing with international law. And I did my PhD while in the foreign ministry then, And I always thought that I would just retire as an ambassador one day. So I didn't look for a university job, but the, the chair in Helsinki became vacant because the previous holder, Bank Brahms, retired from it earlier than he should because of his wife was seriously ill. And, you know, they needed somebody. And they called me up and I thought, well, I've done a lot, lots of things. Why not do this as well? And then, you know, I, I gave the finger to the devil and I was left there. So that's that's how it happened. 
So you worked in the diplomatic services during some turbulent periods of history, for example, the dissolution of the Soviet Union. And you've also talked about the problems of academia and how they view international law and the issue of balance between realism and idealism. How have you incorporated your learning from the diplomatic services into academia? Well, it's absolutely crucial. So my diplomatic uh, service time, I couldn't have done what I did in the academy without having been in practice. So it's all an effort to articulate a meaningful view on international law based on what I did. The textbooks that I encountered and the academic writings I thought was pretty much nonsense. And they reflected none of my experience of the field. So this is not an argument in favor of realism against idealism. So that's not the thing. It was just that the, how would I put it, the phenomenological world of a lawyer was not captured in those rather theoretical um, and abstract and philosophically oriented textbooks. The way I interpreted them, the biggest mistake many of those textbooks and the academy made was to think that international law was some sort of a deduction from a philosophy or deduction from a theory or a system of political thought. Now, I thought it was practice. It was a practice that intelligent people did uh, in view of what uh, they encountered as problems, what their what their bosses gave them to uh, think about, and it was a, uh, above all a linguistic thing. You know, lawyers just speak and write. That's what they do. And so I was interested in the professionalism. What does that consist of? How does one come to think? and write like a lawyer in such a way that other people are persuaded that, wow, this is really powerful legal stuff. That's kind of interesting because from my perspective, when looking at your books, they look very theoretical in a way, but you found a way then to connect praxis to theory. Yeah, that's not the program. If they look theoretical, that's then that's just how they come out. The idea is not to create any theory. I've never been... I've never thought of myself as a person of theory in any sense. I mean, I read a lot, uh, but theory and method, those discussions to me seem boring and uninteresting. Um, And I want to articulate the experience of lawyering in such a way that readers can take something from that experience. And unfortunately, what we have is the academic language. And if you want to participate in an academic debate, then you have to, you know, use that language. Um, So that's how they turn sometimes out to be theoretical. So I'm greatly uh, comforted by the fact that many of the readers say that they are an easy read. Nevertheless, I try to make them such. Yes, definitely. Well, we're going to ask you about your quote-unquote theory about the legal imagination, as you call it, later on. But um, before hopping into the uttermost parts of the earth, your book, um, could you tell us a bit about the world? What was it like in the 14th and 15th um, centuries as a context for our discussion? Yes, I suppose you asked me this question because the book starts in the 14th exactly. and 15th century. Um, and now it's a really easy chronological choice for anyone doing history of political thought, history of, of legal thought, etc. So I was interested, as I said, in the phenomenology of lawyering. And I found that it was around the year 1300 for the first time that a European king, 
our European prince, gathered around him a group of professional lawyers who had been recently trained in places like Orléans, Montpellier, uh, Bologna, Northern Italy, in those universities where the legal training has just started out. Uh, and this was Francis Philippe the Fair. And he had an interest in uh, being counseled by Roman lawyers or lawyers who had learned uh, the law, uh, above all as Roman law, because Roman law projected the prince as the emperor. And so once you had uh, your closest counsel thought that you, and, and spread the word that you were not just a feudal suzerain, but that you were actually an emperor in your own realm, then that was a useful thing to have around. Uh, and so I looked at, at how, how those lawyers around Philip the Fair in the year 1300, how they acted, and they were, boy, they were very uh, active indeed. And they generated a whole idea of France as a state. They used Roman law to articulate the ways of the uh, use of power uh, by, the, by the prince. Um, and the, to that extent, um, they uh, formulated a kind of a starting point for a much longer history of how Europeans imagine, uh, especially jurisdictional power, that is to say the power, public power of the prince. But on the side also at the time, um, the commercial activities in Europe were spreading, uh, spreading around and those commercial activities started to be less and less connected to Christian ideas about usury and avarice. So the question of the sinfulness of mercantile activities became less and less important. And while theology became less and less important as an understanding, as the basis of understanding commercial things, law became more and more important. And obviously law mostly had to do with Roman law or Roman law understandings of local law. So one of your main statements in the book is that it's not a book about international law, it's a book about um, legal imagination. So what's the difference between these two concepts? Right, so in my previous book, The Gentle Civilizer of Nations, it has this subtitle, The Rise and Fall of International Law, 1870-1960. So I'm publicly committed to the proposition that international law began in 1870. And usually with students, I say it began on the 8th of September, 1873, um, uh, in, sometime after lunch. Uh, and so my, my project was to look at, well, how did ambitious European male persons use law in the previous centuries when there wasn't such a thing as international law? And, they, and I looked at the various vocabularies they used. And there were, of course, many. They used many kinds of linguistic operations to justify, stabilize, and sometimes critique the uses of power in Europe and also by Europeans outside Europe. And they used legal vocabularies, different vocabularies, often Latin vocabularies, use naturae et gentium, sometimes French vocabularies, droit public de l'Europe, or maybe a Völkerrecht. Um, and I use these uh, natural languages just to highlight the fact that these lawyers came from particular places. They came from Britain, they came from France, they came from Germany, and they had learned their law 
as you learn them in Britain, France, and Germany, as you do still today. And so their view of the world was profoundly colored by their, their training and their background. A little bit same thing as I said a moment ago about those Roman lawyers who came to Philip the Fair's court in around uh, 1300. And, and so uh, the thesis would be that they were imaginatively, I underline the word, imaginatively applying that domestic experience and training that they had to deal with issues that had to do with the relationship of their prince or the merchant that they serviced with people coming from outside. And their domestic law, the vocabulary of domestic law wasn't always helpful. You needed something else. So maybe you needed use naturae et gentium. The Romans had such a vocabulary and it seemed to apply across national boundaries, etc. So this uh, is not a history of international law. It could not be because his international law began only in the late 19th century. It was a Victorian creation. So this is a pre-Victorian, an analysis of a pre-Victorian period. And again, uh, an effort to sketch the phenomenology of lawyering um, in those times, especially lawyering that had an ambition to deal with matters extending outside the domestic realm. Your other argument of the book is that European power has always come as a combination between sovereignty and property. And you even write in your book that sovereignty and property are the yin and yang of European power. Could you tell us more about this? Well, I've always been obsessed by power since I was a student. And I think law is interesting only because, and to the extent that it deals with power, it opens a way to think about and speak about, and of course, exercise power. And my um, hope was to be able to sketch the phenomenology of lawyering in such a way as to depict the lawyers as, in this case, European men, with some ambition uh, in the world of power, as they approach power, as they articulate power, as they use powerful language to attack enemies, to defend clients, etc. Um, and I noticed, um, not quite accidentally, but uh, maybe with some purpose, I noticed that the vocabulary was divided into two basic idioms, the idiom of public that we nowadays call public law, and the idiom of private law. Uh, and I had the hunch that these two, that the separation of these two in the European legal history is an ideological concoction of some importance. And I wanted to, how would I say, deconstruct or do away with that uh, dichotomy, or look uh, rather more into the dichotomy. And the, an experience suggested to me that Whenever you see public power somewhere, scratch the surface and you will see money and, and financial resources and uh, ownership rights uh, behind it. And But the, my experience also told me that if you see a powerful merchant and or uh, and commercial activity of some significance, scratch its surface and it doesn't take long until you find the military force, a police, a public power behind there. And so I concocted this thesis that public and private are the two sides of the same coin. And I, I wanted to avoid using, I don't like big words, I, words like capitalism. Sometimes they are useful, sometimes they are obstacles for thinking. But 
for the purposes of this conversation, maybe one can think that I was interested in the structures of capitalism in that long period. There are, of course, histories of political thought, histories of the ec economy, um, histories of European politics that dwell at length with capitalism, but they rarely have... Uh, they are really well informed as, as to the role of law. And I wanted to fill that gap also to say that in order for this thing that you call capitalism, maybe with or without reason, but uh, we know more or less intuitively what you mean, then you need to understand how law operates so as to uphold uh, and stabilize that structure of power. You also talk about role of the Companies, for example, you give um, the example of Virginia Company set up in the 1606. So what type of role these companies played in all of this? Well, the companies are quite crucial. And this, of course, relates to what I said a moment ago. So these companies, colonial companies, were chartered by the state, uh, but usually financed by private enterprises, by private operators. Sometimes, as, as in the case of France, I discuss at length, the uh, king himself or the royal family invests very heavily in those companies. But nonetheless, the companies are... Um, act as private operators when they are out there. They are private operators uh, with a twitch, however, to the extent that they, their charters usually entitle them to wage war, to carry out diplomatic relations, etc. Just to give an example, so the, the Levant Company, which was the British colonial company chartered by Queen Elizabeth already in the 16th century, um, the Levant Company appointed the British ambassador to Constantinople or Istanbul until the 1820s, so until the 19th century. So you will see in Levant Company a, a clear example of the amalgam of public and private. So it's a company, the company appoints the ambassador, the ambassador serves the, the king or the queen. And so yeah, you mentioned a moment ago that I wrote there that sovereignty and property are the yin and yang of a European power. The colonial company is a good example. It is the grain of sand in which the universe of capitalism is reflected. That's why I emphasize those companies a lot. I could have done more, and I wish that other people would continue this and would do more work on the history of the company. So how is then property and sovereignty connected to the idea of legal imagination? So, I, yeah, so I'm a post-linguistic turn kind of a guy, which means that I don't really believe in people thinking and then uttering what they say. I believe there are languages out there and people kind of go into those languages and become the machines that speak those languages that are offered to them. Um, and sovereign, the languages of sovereignty and property are both languages that have a Roman law origin in the way that we use them uh, in Europe. And they, in the course of centuries that I tried to trace there, they are, have been developed to a great detail. And I tried to examine these men of ambition, learn those languages, learn those languages in order for, uh, to be able to use power by using those languages in the right circumstances. But if you are a lawyer, you know that it's not that simple. So you need to have imagination. Stuff is thrown at you and you have to react. 
And the two things that every lawyer knows in practice is that when you react, you never have sufficient time to react properly. And secondly, that the reacting is the production of sentences, a production of words, idioms. And the, the point of this is to persuade an audience somewhere. It may be a, a court, but very rarely. Usually it's a, maybe a committee or, you know, your negotiating partner or maybe a PhD jury. So that's what we do. And, and in order to compose those sentences that persuade audiences in a situation where there's, where there's not enough time, where you feel that you, somebody else could do this better or that you're not going to be able to persuade them, then that is the essential essence of the phenomenology of the lawyer of which I spoke. That is the legal experience par excellence. Um, and th that requires imagination. And so in practice, I saw people, and I'm really thankful for this, I saw people who had lots of imagination. I saw also people, lawyers, who didn't have that much imagination. And one could quite rapidly make the distinction. And then when you had this thing or something happens, you have to ask the question, well, it's now uh, 1990 and the country that existed east of Finnish border no longer exists. So what exists there? And, you know, the president wants a response, you know, tomorrow. So what? How do you respond to that? So you create sentences. You look at whatever materials there are in your room. I use in the, in the latest book, I use the term taken from the French anthropologist Claude Lévi-Strauss, bricolage as in order to describe that kind of a work where time is scarce, you have only some materials which are lying around there because of what, what you have been bringing in from the library or, uh, and your colleagues, you know, you can't talk to everybody, but you can talk to maybe two people because they are, you know, close there in the office. And you have to, so this is, so bricolage is where you, you collect a response, you, you respond to a situation, a new situation rapidly, uh, trying to use the, the materials that you are aware of and you, can, you know that you can manage them and you try your best. And so that is, that's, that's where imagination mixes up with the linguistic task as well as the effort to be there when power is exercised. So to continue this metaphor, like property and sovereignty is two bricks in the bricolage. Absolutely. Absolutely, you can say that. So if we set aside the, the term legal imagination and, and, and bricolage, um, is the underlying argument that international law before the 19th century was primarily a way to justify different actions usually of the sovereign, through prominent discourses of that period. You give examples of um, dominium and Christianity, natural law and, and the traits of human nature within the sphere of natural law. Well, now we have to be clear. So there wasn't international law before the Victorian period. There were various legal vocabularies. And those vocabularies appeared useful for people with ambition to exercise power. And then they, through bricolage, then they grasped at those languages. A good example is the language of the royal prerogative in Britain. Now, when I first encountered royal prerogative in this, I didn't know what, the, what on earth was being spoken of. This was an alien concept to me. We don't have royal prerogative in Finland or in much of Europe. But it turned out that for British lawyers, royal prerogative was the 
set of rules and principles and practices through which the King of England and Scotland, if it's what the Suez, the, the British king organized uh, the international relations that he had, not only public law relations, but also private law relations. British merchants operated outside Britain under the royal prerogative. Uh, and so this was an exotic thing in my mind, but you know it turned out to be hugely efficient because Britain became the world ruling power under what under royal prerogative. Um, and so this would be an example, a specific example of the claim that this is not a history of international; it's a history of the legal imagination of a series of legal vocabularies that are being used there. Yeah. So what would you say is the relevance of the history of legal imagination to our contemporary world today? Well, yes. So I'm a crit, as they say. I'm a lefty international lawyer. My interest in academic work is to try to show that the tremendously unjust world in which we live is not what it is because of some necessity. It is because people made choices along the way in situations where history could have, could have gone the other way as well. I'm specifically interested in the way in which we tend to think that ownership and, and public power are somehow fixed entities that have a certain content because they could not be otherwise. And so by producing this history, I can show that People have imagined these two things, sovereignty and property, in a zillion different ways. And that we can also do that, that there is nothing necessary about um, these concepts and these vocabularies. I am specifically uh, interested in undermining those fields such as economics and social science that often borrow these legal vocabularies from lawyers and, and easily speak about statehood and sovereignty and ownership as if those were somehow entities carved in stone. And I want to show, well, that's not the case at all. They are really a very complex entities in which, on which lawyers have thought in very different ways, in which, which have been used in very different ways in practice um, and that they could be so used today as well. All of this to open the, the box uh, the, the, or the prison house in which we live today where the languages of political engagements are part of the problem of the world. You cannot participate in the world in order to change it by speaking today's languages because the languages tie you already to a system that's profoundly unjust. Just in connection to that also, the fact that if uh, property and sovereignty has been, as you've said, used in a million, a zillion different ways in history, it can be used differently in the future. So I like a more, um, uh, maybe a more factual question in regarding to that, in regarding to that because um, as I understand it uh, from reading your book, property and uh, sovereignty was very much connected throughout history. So you said like the companies were, like the, the French king were investing in French companies and there were control, power control over the company from the sovereign. Whereas today it looks like it's very much separated. Uh, like colonies, post-colonies of today, they have 
well, they're sovereigns, but the companies are not controlled by the sovereigns. So would you say that there's been a flip or difference here or is it, you know, connected? Well, I challenged the premise a little bit. So I also wanted to show that at the very moment when Louis XIV was at the peak of his power. So when he apocryphically is supposed to have said, l'état c'est moi, I am the state. At that very moment, a correct description or the correct answer to the question, what is France, would be, France consists of 50,000 venal office holders who have bought their way into state office and who own that office as private property so that their eldest sons can inherit that, that position. Louis XIV couldn't lift a finger without you know, being completely tied, uh, tied up with oligarchic arrangement with the ruling families. Most ruling families who are also the financiers or financiers uh, of uh, the king. So I wanted to say that you know, the yin and yang is really true. So these are so sovereignty and property. Now, listen to me carefully. Sovereignty and property are competing descriptions of the same thing. <laughs> it's like the duck and rabbit image. So, is it duck, is it rabbit? So, it is, so it is the same power. And I really, one of, so I, I have few heroes among these European dead guys, but some of them are the Dominican, uh, Spanish Dominican clergymen from the 16th century who operated with the single concept of dominium. You mentioned it a moment ago. And then developed from that dominium proprietatis and dominium jurisdictionis. But were constantly aware and stressed the fact that these two types of dominium actually embodied one single type of power, which was the power of human beings over other human beings. Uh, and I wanted to resuscitate and bring that understanding to the present so that we understand that when ownership is at issue today and when the power of the, of the parliament is at issue, that those are the same kind of power and that same types of justifications, same types of, of um, criticisms apply to both. But we have forgotten this. I think we're, we're coming to the end of the podcast. Um, at the end of each episode, we like to ask our guests to tell us something that they do outside of academia to bust the myth of academics only reading on their spare time. So I gave an example of myself. So I like, I, I like watching biathlon on my free time. So do you, Marti, have um, something that you enjoy outside of academia? Oh boy, outside of academia, well, I, I, yes, you already preempted me from saying, well, I read a lot. <laughs> Um, but I, but I, what can I say? I read a lot. I, I love uh, French bande dessinée, uh, so I read a lot of that. Is that academic? Well, it does help me, you know, do an academic thing. So I liked, um, until very recently, because I've had some health problems, I liked running a lot. But, you know, in running one thinks academic things. Um, so uh, being, I think that's one of the reasons for why I left the foreign ministry then finally, although I liked it and I, you know, had nothing against being an ambassador one day. So one reason was that the academic life can fill your home 24 hours of a day. And while some people say, oh, you poor Marty, because you are working all the time, <laughs> I say, no, I'm just enjoying my life all the time, 24 hours, what's work? 
yeah, it seems that most of the academics see that they the, the hobby, the spare time and the work is in within academia. Absolutely. Yeah, work-life balance is work. a false dichotomy. There's only life. Exactly. But thank you, Marti Koskeniemi, for joining us for today's podcast. Thank you very much. 